Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Torah for the Earth audio essay. I'm your host, Charlie Forbes, and this week I will be addressing Parashat Mishpatim, which in Hebrew is a technical term for laws or judgments that refer to social legislation. This Torah portion actually begins with a civil law concerning a Jewish bondsman, a Hebrew slave who was sold into slavery because he was a thief. Ramban comments that this law is an extension of the Tenth Commandment, which prohibits coveting, because in order to know what not to covet, one must know the rights and property of others. Rashi also indicates that the connection is evident in the grammar, as the opening line of the parashah, ve'ele ha-mishpatim, and these are the ordinances, begins with the conjunction and, which is an indication that this parashah and the previous one have a direct relationship. But this doesn't take away from the fact that this week's reading stands in stark contrast to last week's Torah portion, Parashat Yitro, which details the intense and wondrous Sinaitic revelation. The sages teach that this seemingly abrupt transition from the revelation at Sinai to laws regarding civil and tort law serves to demonstrate that all areas of life are interrelated and that holiness is derived from correct behavior within the realms of ritual and everyday business. In the Mechilta, we read that Mishpatim were given at Sinai, as the Torah was given at Sinai. It also demonstrates the importance of engaging spiritual experience with something material. Any significant variety of revelation that is to be useful must be translated into something tangible. Divine disclosure is a transient phenomenon, and the insight and motivations gleaned from such an experience must be concretized into something material if the spiritual experience is to be preserved. Parashat Mishpatim is an expression of this principle as God enacts a series of laws for the people of Israel. In addition to the laws of servitude, Parashat Mishpatim introduces laws concerning murder and manslaughter, the penalties for bodily injury, kidnapping, theft, damages caused by animals and the consequence to the owners, and the laws of Shomrim. These are the laws of people who are entrusted to safeguard someone else's property. In Hebrew, a Shomer is a guardian, and this Torah portion classifies four types of guardians and their respective responsibilities. For obvious reasons, they are entitled as the four guardians, and they are the unpaid guardian, the paid guardian, the borrower, and the renter. Much of this parashah revolves around respect for people's property and how to dispense of justice fairly and equally. In chapter 22, verse 24, we get the famous eye for an eye passage, which the Talmud stresses is about financial compensation and paying for restitution of damages. It's not about physical retaliation, which is the common misconception. There are also laws pertaining to the granting of free loans, sensitivity to the financially unfortunate, and laws against mistreating a stranger, something that the commentator's note refers to a convert, but also extends to any foreigner who's a newcomer to a new place, even a fellow Jew. All in all, this parashah contains 53 mitzvot, 
including the mitzvah of prayer and the somewhat esoteric commandment to not consume milk with meat. Observance of the three pilgrimage festivals, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, are also outlined, which are said to symbolize three essential concepts that are at the core of human existence and happiness. Freedom, the seasons, and prosperity. The Sabbaths of the land and of the week are also defined. In Hebrew, the sabbatical year is known as Shemitah, which have great ecological significance and will, I'm sure, be addressed in more detail once we get to the book of Leviticus. God then promises Moshe that the Jews will be led swiftly into Eretz Yisrael, and the parashah concludes with Moshe ascending Mount Sinai again, where he spends the next 40 days and nights receiving the Torah. In chapter 24, verse 7, we read, quote, Moshe took the book of the covenant and read it in earshot of the people, and they said, Everything that Hashem has spoken, we will do and we will hear. End quote. In the Talmud, Shabbat 88a, we read, quote, When the people of Israel gave precedence to we will do over we will hear, a heavenly voice exclaimed, who revealed to my children the secret? End quote. This encapsulates a significant concept within Judaism, which is essentially about doing something before understanding. This doesn't mean that we should jump blindly into action, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to fully comprehend it either. An example often used is that if a person makes all the mental preparations for the performance of a mitzvah, but doesn't perform it, then the commandment is not fulfilled. In Western society, we so much want to understand something before we do it, yet sometimes this hinders our action. And this can be confusing in a time when we are faced with a continuous flood of information from social media or the news, which can make it difficult to make a decision about how to act. Parashat Mishpatim begins with the line, and these are the ordinances that you shall place before them. The rabbis have given several explanations for why the phrase before them is paired with Mishpatim, and the Altar Rebbe gives an interesting answer. Quote, that before them means to our innermost selves, and that the knowledge of God should enter the most inward reaches of the soul. End quote. In the Torah, there are three kinds of law, statutes, which transcend our understanding, testimonies, which can be rationally explained but wouldn't have been conceived rationally, and judgments, in other words, mishpatim, which are laws that human reason would had to have created even if they weren't divinely revealed. The point here is to emphasize that even judgments, which can be obeyed for the sake of reason, must be obeyed from the inwardness of the soul. I do believe that we must approach our environmental action in a similar way. We may understand conceptually that certain actions are positive for the planet, but if we don't support that action with our innermost heart, then we just become robots. The future of the world and of sustainable action depends on our ability to feel for change within our hearts and to follow the dictums guided by natural law. 
the Torah teaches us that every legal dispute must be brought before a court of law, a court that is called Elohim, which is a word that means God. In a sense, mishpatim and rational judgments are very much about obeying the laws of nature and partnering ourselves to creation. They are the ordinances that keep us from destroying the world, from destroying ourselves, and from destroying nature, which is property that belongs to God. Parashat Mishpatim is, as previously discussed, filled with the laws of borrowing and respect for other people's property. But what does this mean for the earth, for earth's property? There are two ways to answer this question. The first is to address the laws of the four prototypes of damages, known as the animal, the pit, the man, and the fire. For example, in chapter 21, verses 33 to 34, we read about the pit, quote, If a man shall uncover a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit and not cover it, and an ox or a donkey fall into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution, end quote. In other words, it's forbidden to leave a dangerous condition in a public space. The same is true of the fire, which refers to damages that result from a hazardous situation that spreads out of control and is not contained by the person responsible. Take, for instance, industries such as mining or fracking that are very much digging literal pits which can create sinkholes or even induce earthquakes that negatively impact the surrounding area. But the effects of such practices can also mirror damages related to the fire, such as when the water table becomes contaminated, or the neighboring ecosystem is harmed from toxic chemicals that are released during drilling procedures and dissipate beyond the site. Rachel Carson shed a little light on this topic as well in the early 1960s with the publication of her book Silent Spring, which addressed the extensive use of pesticides in industrial agriculture. The effects of such industrial practices extend beyond the environmental, disturbing the health of various communities. This is also evidenced by the use of Corexit, a chemical dispersant used during the cleanup of the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico that occurred in 2010 and has been proved to have devastating health effects on people exposed to the chemical. The fossil fuel industry and multinational mining companies have a notoriously long history of upending native populations and splitting families apart, causing incalculable psychological damages. Every country and every continent in the world probably has some history related to the prototype of damages as described in this Torah portion. It is a powerful aspect of halachic Judaism for the modern age, for the industrial age. The second way to address the question of the earth's property is to distinguish between two Hebrew synonyms for creation, Beriah and Yetzirah. There's an argument found in the Talmud premised by this question. If an owner of raw materials gives those materials to an artisan, and the artisan then fashions those raw materials into a finished product and breaks that said product, 
is the artisan obligated to compensate the owner for the value of the raw materials or the finished product? In short, the artisan is paid by the owner to improve upon the material and to protect that material once it has been transformed into a finished product. The artisan is a paid guardian. The artisan has a legal responsibility to protect the finished product, and if it's broken by the paid guardian, they must compensate the original owner for the value of the completed product. Rabbi Norman Lamb wrote an excellent article on this piece of Talmud and places it within the context of humans as paid guardians, so to speak, of nature. The word Beria refers to creation ex nihilo. This is a theological term referring to the notion that God created something out of nothing. This is not a variety of creation or a type of creative act that we as humans participated in or are capable of producing. Beria is reserved for God. Yetzirah, on the other hand, is used to describe a creative act that stems from a pre-existing substance. We, as humans, are invited as co-creators with God to involve ourselves in the ongoing process of Yetzirah. This is a significant ecological point to make because it concerns the commands to fill the earth and subdue it, a passage from Genesis 1 that has been the source of many ideologies that have been environmentally destructive. It has even been used to justify industrial farming practices, for example, and widespread agriculture. But we as paid guardians, as artisans, do not have ownership over our own creations. Because we are incapable of beriah, we are held accountable for how we handle the raw materials of life nature included. We are commissioned to build upon, improve, transform, and better the world, not destroy it. And even if we perfect the world, whatever that means, it still doesn't belong to us. That position is reserved for God. Thank you all for listening. That's all for now, and I'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.